Hope you can make it out today. Anybody know if you have a pond on your own property? Can anybody fish on it? You have any any wisdom or guidance relative to that? Let us know. Otherwise, we'll have kids fish tonight. What's that? See on your own. Okay, there we go. Anyways, come on out tonight. It should be fun. It's supposed to be a nice day, and we'll we'll sit around, eat together, get a chance to chat, and and play some games. Maybe throw throw catch some carp. Talking about talking about the good life in James chapter three versus chapter four. And uh, in the course of talking about things, James calls our attention, touches on evil's triple threat. The world, the flesh, the devil. And each one brings a different influence. Let's look, James chapter 4, 1 through 2, or 5 through 6. Starts off with a question in this section of the passage. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. What do you think? Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When we deal with the world and the flesh, Last year we looked, last week we looked at the world, today we'll look at the flesh, next week we'll look at the devil. The world promotes boasting. In the text from last week's, it says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. When James speaks of friendship with the world, he's not speaking of the world as a place a planet populated by people. He's speaking of the world as composed of values, an operating system, if you will. And John helps us to understand what the world's values are, what the world's operating system, what drives it. And 1 John chapter 2, 15 and 16, that's what it said, do not love the world or anything in the world. Again, when it says do not love the world, it's talking about the operating system of the world, the values that the world runs by. And it goes on to describe what those are. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The cravings of sinful man literally is the lust or desires of the flesh. That's literally how we might translate that verse. The lusts or the desires of the flesh. Now, when we think about this, one application we would think about, well, it's talking about pornography. No, it isn't. It's not specifically about that. It's, it's more general about just wanting what we see. That's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. It's perceiving something, wanting to have that thing, and the resultant efforts that I go through in order to secure what I want. That's what it's speaking of when it talks about the world. So the world then is about possess what you want and parade what you possess. The world system is about possessing the things that you desire to possess. 
And this is a wanting that leads to flaunting. If I get what I want, there's no fun keeping that to yourself. So the system of the world, then it's not only get it, but then get and show. It's uh, parade what you possess. When the text talks about the boasting of what he has and does. So the world promotes boasting. And the flesh has a different feel. The flesh promotes blaming. What it says in James chapter 4, verse 5. It says, Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely? Let's define a couple words. Envies intensely. You know what envy is. It's the desire to have something. Envy, intense envy, is infected envy. It's it's starts out at the desire to have something, but it goes on from there. You know what happens with a mosquito bite. You see mosquitoes are around in force now. Um, so if you come to the picnic, you might bring some rug spray. Uh, anyways, you know what happens if you get a mosquito bite? Don't scratch it. It will become infected. And then you end up with a different thing. It starts off as something itchy, but then when you get an infection, it becomes something a little bit different. The same thing with envy. Envy starts off as the desire to have. This word for envy is not simple envy. It's the envy that exists after it has had the opportunity to marinate in desires. Now, some things are really good marinated, chicken and a marinade, but when the desire to have marinates, and you keep on looking at what you don't have and what they do have, then the envy becomes intense envy, infected envy. And what begins as the desire to have something that someone else has becomes the desire to hurt them for having it. Now, we might not go through, but it's like, why, why do they got that thing? And I don't have it. That's intense envy. That's what it's speaking of. And what it says, and again, if you want an illustration of this, we've talked about it before, Cain and Abel. They both present their offerings to God, um, and God says, I pick Abel's. And if we ask Cain at that point what he wants, he'd say, what's wrong with my offering? (laughs) Mine's as good as Abel's, and I'm the oldest, and my offering should have been accepted. But then what happens over a period of time, he marinates in it. And he looks at his offering standing there, and he looks at Abel, who's smiling, maybe. And it turns to hate. And the first murder rises from the soil of resentment, intense envy. It says the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. This creates some interesting problems for translators. Um, Here's a couple different versions of this verse. I'm going to read both of these. Now, you look at the difference in them. One is an earlier version of the New International Version from 1984. The other is an update from 2011. And let me just read it. Do you think that Scripture says without reason that the Spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? So what it indicates, do you think the Spirit says without the Scripture says that the Spirit He caused to live in us, and the He would be God, that God caused a Spirit to live in us that envies intensely. 
Now, that seems, well, how could God do that? And so, different versions, they make the word intense envy from something negative, and they say it must mean positive. It must mean jealously long. So, they change the verse. Do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he caused to live in us? Do you see what they did? So intense envy goes from a negative thing like Cain has for Abel to a positive thing. God jealously longs the spirit to live in us. Which one of those trans? Do you see the difference in the translation? Which one's correct? The word intense envy is never positive. In fact, when the Pharisees um, are handing over Jesus to Pontius Pilate. Pilate was smart enough to know that it was out of, and he uses the same word, intense envy that they handed Jesus over. It was a, it's a hateful envy. And in line with that, I'm going to say that this is the correct translation. The word is never positive. So what is it saying? The problem, I think, is that the older version, it fits the context because here's the question that James is addressing. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Which one of those translations answers the question, the top one? What what causes fights and quarrels among you? It's the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. It literally means longs to envy intensely. We have a spirit inside us that when we're wronged, we desire long to put the blame on somebody and to not like them for doing it. And it indicates that we have a predisposition to do that. When we're wronged, we want to find somebody to blame, and we, yeah, that's right. And it's, we're hardwired to do that. And the verse indicates the reason why we fight and quarrel is because blame is something that we like. Have you felt that? Different ones of us, we blame different entities. Some of us, if there's problems, if I come up to you and say, hey, listen, man, we got an issue. Some of you, before you even think of it, will go, what did I do? Now, again, I haven't even told you what the problem is. But some of us automatically knee-jerk reaction, oh, what did I do now? Now, some others of us, if I come up to you, we have a problem. Oh, what did you do? I mean, what's your problem? Tell me about it. What did you do? We can solve it probably. I know that you're not all that smart, but, you know, know, I guess we can can fix that. And that is so we, but some of us, we blame ourselves and we blame others, but isn't it, well, it isn't strange, is it? How... Quick we are, and there's a sense of settledness, isn't there, when you're able to blame somebody? Don't you find it takes the tension out of things? When there's no one to blame, it doesn't make us feel as comfortable as when we can put the finger on somebody and we can point at it. That's, I think that's what it's saying, is we long to assign blame. And this longing is relieved when we blame someone. Resentment wells up naturally when we don't get what we want. I guess what I'm saying the predisposition to resent is hardwired in us. Hardwired. I think God puts it there. 
And that's what causes fights and quarrels among us. Uh, I say, Mike, let's talk about resentment a little bit. The trap of resentment. You know what resentment literally means? It's from a word, uh, I think it's French. Sentiment means to feel. Re means to do it again. You know what resentment is? Is when you think about that thing. Now, there's some things that happen to us that don't stimulate a lot of resentment because we didn't care that much in the first place. But there's some things. Remember what the boss said about how you were embarrassed in front of everyone? And in a quiet moment, you might be sitting in your office and it will come back into your brain what he did and you start to feel it all over again. Or what he said or what she did or what you did or what they did. Some of us resent, why did I do that? And it keeps on coming up in our brain. Resentment is powerful, very powerful. Um, it's powerful because it has a long half-life. Resentment has a long half-life. If you feel resentment over a circumstance, there's enough accumulated fuel because of other things. You, we can always find more fuel to put on the resentment fire. You know, when this happens, well, this happened, and that happened as a result of this. And so we find that we have plenty of fuel for resentment. Not only that, well, if we have doubts about the power of resentment, ask the Israelites. Well, we know resentment can stay fresh in the wilderness. And it can be as fresh on the 39th year as it was on the first year. It has a long half-life, uh, is what it said. And look at Exodus 17, 1 and 2. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sinai, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. And it goes on to say that the people became thirsty. I have a question. Is it wrong to be thirsty? Is it wrong to have bodily needs? See, sometimes when we think of the flesh, we think of, well, things like thirst and hunger, and is it, we tend to think that physical reactions are bad. There's nothing wrong with thirst, is there? No, nah, it's natural. You know what thirst is? Thirst and hunger are God-given alarm systems that our body requires something that is necessary for survival. Isn't that what hunger is? It's an alarm system. That's what thirst is. There's nothing wrong with physical needs. And why do I mention this? That sometimes that can become a problem. People think that, well, the spirit is good, but the flesh is bad. You remember the Da Vinci Code? Remember if you watched that movie? Remember the priest who put that thing around his leg and he drew it tight in order to bleed his leg? Because if he punished himself, that was more holy. And if you saw, he took this whip and he took it and he, and he actually flailed himself. And we might say, well, that was, you know, but there were flagellants. And in the early church, it was individuals who felt this is bad and the spirit is good and therefore you punish this. And we don't get that from the Bible. Now, we have to manage desires, but the Bible doesn't indicate that this is bad. Flesh is bad. Didn't Jesus take this on? He did. And you know why Jesus took this on? So he could sympathize with us. This isn't bad. In fact, we're going to live in a form of this. On the other side, the form Jesus lives in. Jesus was still a physical being. After he rose, his physical physicality was different, but he was still able to eat. Remember, 
Thomas, put his hand, my Lord and my God, Saul, we're going to exist as spirit beings in immortal bodies. This is a mortal body. Check out this body 100 years from now, and it won't deteriorate. An immortal body won't break down, won't get cancer. won't turn in on itself, won't destroy itself, won't wear out. No aches and pains when you get up in the morning. No having to think very carefully about how far and how you're going to move to get off the chair. No crying. Immortal bodies. Bodies that don't have issues. On this side of eternity, we have Mortal bodies that have a problem, but even though our body's flawed, there's nothing wrong because Jesus experienced hunger. He experienced everything that we experience, cold, pain. In fact, that's why he came into this earth through a womb. He could have come any way he wanted, didn't he? Couldn't he? He could have just zapped onto the earth, but Jesus came into this planet through a womb, the way that we experience it. He experienced cold and hunger, anxiety, and fear. Why did he experience all those things? The answer? So he could sympathize with you. So he could understand what pain feels like. Turbulence feels like. So when you turn to him, you could be sure you're turning to somebody who understands. Um, again, but what I'm saying that there's nothing wrong with the body. However, deprived of what they need, they assigned blame. This is the flesh. Not physical needs, but our reaction to physical needs, especially if they're chronic. We assign blame when our needs grow. And look what it says. Moses cried in verse 3 to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah. Because the Israelites quarreled. And because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? God points out what his issue is, and this is what he says. Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? What was their problem, according to God, that they had thirst and hunger? No, that's not the problem. The problem is related to the fact they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? What is the point? They never brought their needs to him. Did they address God, saying, what, why didn't you, what did they do? Who did they hold responsible? Moses. Why? Because there was a spirit in them, the same spirit that's in us. We like to point fingers. In fact, we'd rather point a finger at ourselves than open up our hand to God. We'd rather point a finger at somebody else than open up our hand to God. Now, sometimes people need to be held accountable for things. This is first. This is second. Uh, and that's what they test the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Um, not that they were thirsty, 
but they acted as if God had left the building. He promised to be with them, and they did believe it, or they didn't believe it enough to ask him for water. Uh, we tend to think, well, if only I knew that God was leading me. Imagine what it would be like to have no doubts whatsoever as to God's will for your life. Imagine what that would be like. Think that'd be kind of cool? What's God's will? If the cloud's moving, it's God's will to move. If the cloud stops, it's God's will to stop. And so there's no doubt whatsoever about the will of God. But what do you do when the will of God brings you to a thirsty place? You know what we tend to do? Point the finger at somebody else rather than open up our hands to God. And that's God's issue. When we have needs, he wants us to tell him about them. He wants us to treat him as if he actually exists. As if he is with us. Is God with you? Well, certainly not in your job. Because if you landed in the job that you landed in and are experiencing what you experienced, God could never be there. Because he would never allow anything like that. He would never allow thirst and hunger to exist for you, would he? Could he? Yes, he could. He could. And But again, I'm with you. We, we like blaming more than we do asking. Um, the problem with resentment, again, it's durable. It has a long half-life. You know what else about resentment? It is really toxic. I, I love this quote. Resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Think about that. Think about that. Bathed in resentment, and we're thinking, oh boy, <laughs> if they could see the way I'm thinking about them. And, and that person might be oblivious to your resentment of them, but the resentment is eating us alive. That's why, how do we deal with resentment? Grace, the flesh promotes blaming. Grace resists the flesh. Grace is really good with the flesh. It's good dealing with blaming influences. And, yeah, there we go. The, the world promotes that should be, I put the wrong thing in there. What does the world promote? What does the world promote? Boasting. And, Grace resists the world. What does the flesh promote? Blaming. And grace helps to resist the flesh. Um, there's good news and bad news. The good news is, well, look what it says in, in James 4, 5. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? The good news, but he gives us more grace. He gives us greater grace. God might give us a spirit that envies intensely, but with that, he gives us the capacity to deal with the spirit. He gives us grace. And we're going to talk about what that is and how we use and access grace. Um, but i got to go on to say there's some bad news. The good news is he gives us more grace. And we found it in it, grace deals with the world as well. Last week, we saw that the grace of God that brings salvation teaches us 
to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Grace helps us to deal with the influence of the world, which leads to boasting. It helps us to deal with the influence of the flesh, which leads to blaming. Grace does both. That's the good news. What's the bad news? God opposes proud. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's the bad news. Humility in the Bible is not associated with being self-effacing. Humility is not, oh, it was nothing. I did this PowerPoint slide. No, 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 it wasn't about me. Please, please. Um, That's being self-effacing. That's not what humility is in the Bible. In the Bible, humility is associated with enduring hunger and thirst. It's the inability to use what I have to get what I want. That's what humility is in the Bible. It is the lifestyle of a slave. You ask a slave living in a culture in which slavery is allowed, what do you want? What do you want? What would you like to do? It's a nice day. What would you like to do today? And that slave will say, it doesn't matter what I'd like to do. I have to do what my master tells me to do. And that's what humility is, the inability to leverage my resources to do what I want. Uh, Humility is the possession of those who have learned to live with tension. Are you like me? I really don't like tension. Anybody love tension here? (laughs) Like the tension of frustrated needs, really enjoy that. Wanting something, not having it, that's a great feeling, isn't it? Having something that you don't want day after day after day after day. Isn't that a great thing? Shooting up prayers to God. Sure that God's going to take this thing away, and then you get up in the morning, and there it is again. (laughs) Thank you, God. Thanks so much for this thing that I don't like. And you know what we end up doing in the wilderness? Learning to live with tension. Learning to live with tension. That's humility. It says he humbled you. Last verse here, Deuteronomy 8. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. <laughs> did you hear that one? <laughs> and God, thank you so much that not only did I get to eat manna in the wilderness, and I'm so sick of manna cotti, and I'm sick of the manna bread, and, and <laughs> anyway, so, um, but I'm still in the same outfit. Thank you so much that these shoes are as fresh as not as not as fragrant, but as Durable, in fact, I don't think I could have. I think I could walk in the wilderness another 120 years in these shoes would still be the ones that are on me. Okay. Know then in your heart, verse 5, that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Humility, it comes with three things. It says, he humbled you, causing you to hunger. Causing you to hunger. How do you cause somebody to hunger? You remove their supply. 
You put them in a place that they don't have the friendships that they need, where they don't have the money that they need. They don't have the purpose that they need. They lack things that are things that you can't just dismiss. Hungers and thirsts are things that don't go away. That feeling is with you, and so what he does, he causes us to hunger and then feeds us in unexpected ways. So it comes, this, this thing to meet the need doesn't come from the normal route. That's been interrupted. It comes from this other place. It causes you to hunger and feeds us in unexpected ways to teach us to rely on everything that comes from God's mouth. Your paycheck comes from God's mouth. It's, it's from one perspective. But God has more for you than just paychecks. He has other things to say. And sometimes we are so used to getting this physical stuff that we don't rely on other stuff from him. We don't pay attention to him. Will you agree with me that we don't trust God until we have to? When the pipelines are flowing, everything's coming in. Thank you. And we can, but when the pipeline is interrupted, when the hunger and thirst is there, you know what we ended up doing at that point? What are you doing? And at that point, God meets the need in unexpected ways. There's, we've looked at five steps. In fact, we could break this down like this. Humility. A couple things. Humility is about being real. Hypocrisy and humility go in opposite directions. A humble person does not pretend that they don't have hunger and thirst. They're able to admit it. That might have been the problem with the Israelites in the wilderness. God might be saying, talk to me. How you doing? You're in a place without any water. Great. Fine. I don't need water. Really? Be real. God already knows what's on your heart, so you might as well be honest with him about it. It doesn't help our relationship with God to pretend with him. Humility doesn't pretend. It's honest about where you are, how you feel. Be honest with God. That's first. Be real. Be still. Express to God. And there's some things. God has some promises for you. He says, do you know? I'm going to be exalted. God says this. Be still. We've said this before. Be still in Psalm 46.10. There's a, there's a mannerism with it. It really means to do this. Be still. Rafa means to do this. If I hang, let my hands hang limp at my side, this feels very unusual. We've tried this before. If you want to try it, try it. Let your hands hang limp at your side. It feels odd. It really feels strange. Some of you don't want to do it. You say, I'm not going to do it. It does feel weird. Usually we're doing something. We're holding something. We're called. To do this feels odd. I feel like I should be active. And that's what Rathon means. Be still. Don't dial the phone yet. Don't call for the thing to be replaced yet. Be honest. Now be still. And he says, know that I am God. And think about him. You know what God says to you? I will be exalted in the nations and on earth, and I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never cast you adrift. If we had a boat out in the pond over here, not, you couldn't sail far, 
But if there was, leave would be to untie a boat and to let it drift. That's, it's to unloose something. And what God is saying, I will never untie you from me. I will never let you drift. And I will never leave you behind. If we were to be in a war zone and you would be out in enemy territory and you got cut off from the platoon, God really says Semper Fi. He will not leave you on the battlefield alone. That's leave or forsake. That's what God tells you. In the honesty of being real, God would have you listen to him and say this. In the reality of your need, I will be exalted in the nations and on earth. So even though you're having trouble, what you are going through is not going to prevent me from accomplishing my purposes. And not only on this grand scale, God would tell you, I will never cast you adrift. And I will never leave you behind. Ever. I don't care where you're walking or what you're walking through. Be real. Be still. Breathe freely. You know what God wants you to do? Have a conversation with him. Exhale your concerns. God, I'm going through something difficult and I need help. I'm afraid. Exhale your concerns. Inhale his commitments. Thank you that you promised to do things. There's been times that you've been with me. If you have a long trip to make, breathe out. Exhale concerns. Breathe in. Inhale commitments. That's the way to survive the wilderness. Exhale your concerns. Inhale his commitments. Exhale your concerns. Be honest with him. Inhale his commitments. Some of us are really good at exhaling concerns. You can't exhale a concern and last long if you don't inhale commitment. Some of us are good at the opposite thing. And some of us are really good at expressing our concerns to God, but not listening to him. Some of us are really good at listening to him, but not good at expressing our concerns. Breathe freely. Learn to do both. That's humility. That's what humility looks like. That's what it feels like. Not pretending. God, I'm thirsty. Thanks that you say you'll be with me. Thanks that you understand thirst and hunger. That leads to wisdom, the ability to wait perseveringly. And you know what's going to come next, don't you? Ability to respond gently. In the situation that you're in, God would have you what wisdom looks like, the ability to wait perseveringly and respond gently. You're saying, Mike, how do I do this? This is how you do it. God is with you. I know some of you are in a very difficult place. Can I encourage you to do three things? Sure, you're going to be mad at some people, and you're going to feel the need to blame yourself or others. That's Feel that. That's real. It's honest. You can tell them about that too. But in the midst of that thing, 
for just a minute, think about him and address him. Now, you can say pattern prayers. Those are fine. But you might supplement it with, be real with him. Express the things that are true of where you are now. Can I encourage you to do something? Be real. Don't judge yourself. Don't judge yourself. Just observe yourself. God, here's the deal with me right now. I tend, I just feel like I'm going crazy. I can't get my head in my work. And again, you might feel like this is bad, but try not to judge it. Just observe it. I think Jesus was great at this, by the way. A couple, a couple days, it's in the last week of his life, and you know what he ends up saying? He's in Jerusalem. I think Palm Sunday has already happened. He's with the disciples, and this is what he says. My heart is agitated. And he didn't say, oh, no, my heart is agitated. He goes, my heart is agitated. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? For this very reason I came to the hour. Father, glorify your name. You know what Jesus was like? He was able to accept that. My heart's agitated. He was honest. And then he was able to address that. Be real. Be still. Think about what he's saying to you. And then breathe freely. Talk to him. If, if As we learn to do these things, it will help us to do these things. Worship team, come on up. It'll help us to wait perseveringly and respond gently. And that is what wisdom is about. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, thank you for um, not only telling us about the things that we'll deal with, but also giving us resources to deal with them. Grace is good to teach us to resist the world. It helps us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. You give us grace to help us deal with the blaming influence of the flesh, with the boasting influence of the world. And as we hold on to it, as we are real and still, we're breathing freely with you when we practice that, when we need to. It helps us to, to be wise, to wait perseveringly and respond gently to ourselves and others. Thanks for not only telling us what to do, but how to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.